we've been in the book of John, and we're going to be continuing in the book of John today. So if you'll open with me to page 1222, the Gospel of John. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying in chapter 1, so we've made it to chapter 2. So <laughs> I know it. So first, uh, let's just review a little bit. In chapter 1, we... Uh, want to kind of see what John is doing. I think uh, how he writes and the things he's saying to us are important to understanding fully his word that he's leaving with us. So John begins by a personal testimony in chapter 1 of really defining who Jesus is. And he defines him as you remember the word. And this word in Greek is logos. And this word means, uh, yes, it means God's written word. So it does mean the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it does mean the written word about Jesus. And that is so true. But it goes beyond that. It's beyond just the written word. It's the very essence of who God is. It's the very thoughts that God has. It's his ideas. It's his plan. And so what John is saying is, Jesus is the word, the very plan that God has, his very thoughts, his very ideas, the very essence of who God is. He goes on, and we want to see this very clearly, that he defines God in verse 1. I'm sorry, he defines Jesus so well in verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So, so powerfully worded here, John comes and he helps us to understand that God's plan was before the beginning, it was with God, and it was God. has to be understood that John is writing that so pointedly. Then he comes down in verse 14 and he reminds us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John comes and he gives, uh, he records the testimony of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes and he gives testimony to who God is as well. So John, the writer of the gospel, is give, giving testimony of who Jesus is, the word. Now he records who John the Baptist says Jesus is, and he is the Lamb of God. I think if you look down in verse 29, it says, The next day John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the other thing that John goes ahead in verse 34, John the Baptist also testifies, and he says, And I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. So the writer of John, the writer of the Gospel of John, is setting out and laying out testimonies of who Jesus is. Then he comes, and in the next part, the end of chapter 1, he writes about the disciples and how Jesus calls his disciples. And he calls them to follow him. But in verse 41, we see that what they who they see Jesus is and what their testimony is is defined and recorded in verse 30 I'm sorry verse 41 it says he first found his own brother Simon 
and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, the anointed one. So the disciples are now coming and they're defining who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. In verse 49, Nathanael comes and he defines Christ. And he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So in the first chapter of John, he's actually coming and defining who Jesus is. He's defined him by what John saw as the writer of the Gospel of John. He's defined him as what John the Baptist saw him and who he was. He's defined him as who his disciples saw him to be. Today, he's going to move out from these individual places and move into a whole city that's going to begin to see Jesus for who he is. So if we look at chapter 2, I want to read through uh, verse 1 through verse 12, and then I want to go back and look at some things that John is talking to us about and helping us to see more clearly. So verse 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana, of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set... I'm sorry, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out good wine, and when the guests have drunk well drunk, then the, inf- then the inferior, you, I'm sorry, then the inferior, You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Okay, a First of all, there's so much in this that I want to make sure we get every little nugget that God has revealed, but I want to say this, I think there's even more there that we might not understand. God is always unfolding and always helping us to grab hold of new understandings in his word. It's so powerful. But one of the first things I want you to look at in verse 11, it says, this beginning of signs Jesus did this is his, considered his first miracle. But I want to show you that the word here is not miracle. 
even though this word could be miracle, but it's also better understood as sign. So Jesus, or John is telling us something very important right here. He says this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did. So miracles, yes, it is a miracle. But I want to say this, it's more than a miracle. It's more than a miracle, it's the sign. So we think about signs, and signs have a, a purpose in that they lead us somewhere. So the sign is something that this story that John is uh, recording for us is a understanding that's leading us to somewhere. So if we just see this as a miracle, somehow we might miss looking for the signs and the purpose in the story. So I want us to be looking very clearly for these signs. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding. And it says, and Jesus' mother was there. So we think that possibly, by what it's saying, that possibly Mary was there before Jesus. Some would say that. I don't think it really matters. But what a couple of things I do think is important is, is that Mary was there, and it's, um, I think his disciples were there, and his brothers were there, which is what it tells us in, in verse 12 which leads us to believe it might be a relative or a really close friend. The whole family has come to this event. But what's most important in verse 1, it says, on the third day. On the third day. Well, when the Bible tells us specific things, we want to look into that and see exactly what is being said. So on the third day, the first thing that is going to pop into our mind, and I think is very important, is that the third day was the day Jesus rose from the dead. So it is, we're reminded of the time of resurrection. So I think that's important when we're looking for these signs of what this story is leading us to. One of the first things we want to remember is the resurrection. But I want to lead you back somewhere else, too. I did a little bit of research on weddings and found some powerful information. First of all, the weddings in this time were about seven days. So it wasn't just the day of the wedding and then a great reception and everybody go home. This was a big party. You came for seven days. And here's the thing, most everybody in the town came. Now, this little town wasn't huge. In fact, it's expected to be or thought to be about 500 people at the time that Jesus was in Cana. And so about 500 people, everybody kind of knew each other. Everybody knew what was going on. Most everybody was coming to the wedding. It was a big event, and everybody had come to the wedding. And yet, the third day is significant. So it's believed, by what I've been studying, is that this is not just the third day of the week, which some commentaries, if you will read, would tell you that this is the third day of the week. I don't believe that that's what it's saying at all. I believe this is talking about what's most important in this study, in this um, story, is the wedding. This is the third day of the wedding. Okay? 
So everybody's already been there a few days. That's what I want you to hear. Everybody's been having a good time. Everybody's been partying. Everybody's been loving on each other. And now it's the third day. What's interesting about that is that as I read and studied, is this actually leads us back to Genesis 1. Because why would this even be important? So go back to Genesis 1 on page 1. The time of creation. So starting in verse 9, we have, uh, God has been creating things. And starting in verse 9, we come to the third day. And it says, starting in verse 9, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And God called the dry land earth, and the gather, gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herbs that yield seed, and the fruit trees that yield fruit, according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herbs that yield seeds, yield seeds according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in its according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. So it's interesting because God did basically a couple of things on the third day. He didn't do just one thing. First thing is, he called the dry land out of the earth. If you remember, we looked at this several months ago when we were teaching on baptism. And that this is a picture of understanding what baptism actually defines for us. In that the, the earth is, is actually called out of the water and becomes a new creation. So it's an understanding that when you see baptism, exactly that, that one person dies to themselves and is raised up to walk in the ways of Jesus, a new creation happens. This is the picture that goes back to Genesis 1. And this is an understanding that we're going to see unfold even today. So this place of seeing that the earth was called out of the water, a new creation was formed. And God said it was good. Then he put forth on the earth all the things that he put forth. He put the grass and the, the seed and the trees and all of these things he formed on the earth. And it was good. In the Jewish understanding, the third day of the wedding is a very important time. 
The third day of the wedding is considered to be the day of double blessings. Because God used this day to bring forth two times, he says it was good. Two times. On all of the others, he only says it one time. But on this time, he says it is tov. And Daniel has taught us about this Hebrew word tov. And this word tov means not just it's good and it's pleasant to look at or it's pleasant to, uh, to, to be around, but he's saying it's tov, it's purpose. is It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. And it's for God's purpose. So he's saying right here that the earth was coming out of the water and it was good because this was God's purpose. And the earth was fulfilling its purpose. So a couple of things that I want you to grab hold of that we don't want to leave here without absolutely understanding. First of all, the third day is considered a double blessing. The second thing is, is that the word good, tov, means that it fulfills the purpose that God has for it. The third thing is, is that it's a new creation is formed. As it comes out of this place, a new creation is formed. And the fourth thing, it is a picture of baptism. And the last thing is, it's a picture of resurrection. All right, now I want us to look back. Now let's turn back to John. Hopefully you put your marker there in chapter 2, page 1222. Page 12, 22, John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. So first of all, we see that the mother is very aware of what's going on at the wedding, which might indicate that she is a close friend, a um, trusted person to be watching over some things, maybe even a relative. But what we see is that Mary is very aware of what's going on. And this is important to understand because she knew what the significance of this was. So think about this. These people have come. They've been there on the third day. They've already been there two, two days. This is now the third day. And they've got three or four more days to go. It's a seven-day wedding. And we're out of wine. 
the thing about it is wine for us we might go well that's okay you can drink root beer or you can have uh, uh, water or you can have iced tea and you, it, the party can go on and be okay because she knows she remembers and her faith and her trust is so strong I think this is a good word for us today as we find situations that we're in that we can find this place that we can trust Jesus and whatever he says to obey, to do it, to walk it out. Verse 6 says, Now there were, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons a piece this is a place that I just labored over and labored over most of the week trying to understand and God just out of his mercy and grace began to help uh, lead me to understanding some of these places so the first thing that we want to look at is these water pots were according to purification. So this was, a, these water pots were used for ceremonial cleansing. So we've been studying back in Leviticus, you remember, there were places that if you were found unclean, you had to be cleansed, and you would go and wash. And these were ceremonial pots for cleansing. Also, you remember the priest. If they were going into the temple, they had to, to be cleansed. They had to walk through the mikvahs and, and be immersed in the waters. The waters came from these ceremonial pots and then would help fill up the mikvahs. The bride, before her wedding, had to be purified. So what we want to grab hold of right here is a piece of understanding that is being laid out for us that says the bride, before she could come to the wedding, before she could come to her groom, before she could come to the bridegroom, she had to go through the ceremonial cleansing. And the cleansing for this place came from the water in these pots. And then the mikvahs were filled with this water that was used for the cleansing. And then she would wash through these mikvahs and be cleansed before she came to the wedding. So these are the pots that were used for ceremonial cleansing. It says there were six water pots, and it says they were made of stone. Six is absolutely a, um, a, a great teaching here on six. There's a couple of things we don't want to miss. The number six means mankind. So it stands and it's symbolic for mankind. So oftentimes when you see six in the Bible, it's talking about mankind. Because back in creation, on the sixth day, man was created. So mankind was created on the sixth day. Adam and Eve were created. And then God rested on the seventh day. 
So we see here that this speaks of these six days speaks of mankind. I'm sorry, six water pots speaks of mankind. But I want to say something else about this six. And you see this in creation. It also speaks of work. So six days God worked, and the seventh day he rested. So this war understanding of work is understood here in the water pots in that mankind would use this water for their way to work through to cleansing. Does that make sense to you? This was their way, and it was laid out in God's laws. This is how you do this. But the laws were always given to point us to the goal of Jesus. Such as it is here. These clay, I'm sorry, they're not clay. These stone pots are leading us to an understanding that reminds us back in Leviticus, just like the sacrifices led us to understanding that there was going to be a lamb that was needed. The clay pots that were used in the Levitical places and the stone pots were to remind us that cleansing had to happen. The mikvahs were to remind us of the cleansing that had to happen. These pots were here for those kinds of cleansing. You remember the Pharisees said, you've got to wash your hands before you eat. They were thinking about ceremonial pots. Now, one thing really important to understand is there was two different kinds of pots. Most of the pots were clay pots. And so you wanted to wash your hands, you used clay pots. And if those pots got contaminated, they had to be destroyed because they were no longer clean. But this specifically says they're stone pots. The stone pots were primarily used either around the mikvahs for the priesthood going into the temple. Or you could find the stone pots around the home of the priesthood. So it is believed that this home is probably a home that was out of the tribe of the Levites. And they had the stone pots. The stone pots were much uh, more difficult to make. You had to find a big stone to begin with because it's holding 30, 20 to 30 gallons of water. That's a pretty big stone. And then they had to hollow out that stone that it would hold the water. The other thing that's really important about this stone pot is that the stone pots were only used, as we said, for the temple cleansing. And in the priesthood's home, it had to be water that came from living water. 
It's not the same water that was used in the clay pots. It had to be the water that was used that was from the living water, from streams that were not sitting and, and getting stagnant, but that were running water, living water. And they would put it into the stone plot, plot, uh, pots. The other thing that I want to be reminded of here is, and you probably have already thought about it, is the stone. Jesus is the cornerstone. And so if you'll turn with me, let's just look real quickly to uh, Ephesians 2. On page, keep your marker here, we'll come back to this. Page 1344. Ephesians 2, page 1344. Starting in verse 19, it says, Now... Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So I believe I want to help us to understand that what this stone represents is Jesus. Look at Peter, page 1391, 1 Peter, chapter 2. Starting in verse 3, it says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. So Jesus, a living stone. So I believe that the place that Jesus is giving us and helping us to understand through this story that the writer is helping us to understand about Jesus is that he is the stone, the living stone that the pots were made from and the water was poured into them. All right, now I want to turn to uh, back to our story in John. In verse 7, it says, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water and fill them to the brim. These are ceremonial 
cleansings used for ceremonial cleansing. These are the stone ones. They had to be filled with what? Living water. Living water. Jesus is saying it's got to be filled to the brim. Fill them up with water to the brim. Then verse 8 he says to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And, and they took it. And the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. So the water is now wine. So they filled it up to the brim with living water. And now as they dip it out, it's wine. And what we've talked about for many years is how Jesus turned the water to wine. And this is a great miracle. And how he kept the party going. That's not what Jesus is doing in this story. He's pointing us to his resurrection. You see, in this place of the wine, the understanding of the wine is referred to over and over again in the New Testament is his blood. So I want to take you to a couple of scriptures and, and let's look at the foreshadowing that we see in this place. So turn with me to Matthew 26. Leave your marker here. Matthew 26 is on page 1146. And Jesus, as you remember, is having the last Passover with his disciples before he is crucified. And this place in verse 27, so Matthew 26, verse 27, says, Then he took the cup and gave, and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it all, I'm sorry, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions, remission of sins. So Jesus is with his disciples, and he picks up the, the third cup of wine. And he says, this is my blood. That is shed for the remissions of sin. And then in verse 29, he says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus drinks of this place, and he says, Every, every one of you need to know this. This is my blood. This, this wine right here, this is my blood. And I won't drink it again until... I drink it with you in the kingdom, in the kingdom, in my Father's kingdom. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at 1 Corinthians on page 1320, 1 Corinthians 11.
and um, let's look, and, and Paul is writing, and starting in verse 24, it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood, the blood, the Jesus is, is giving us an understanding at this wedding that the water, the cleansing water, has to, has to be changed into his blood. It has to be his blood. What was a cleansing water in the Old Testament, in the Leviticus understanding, was always pointing to what would be birthed out of that place and would be his blood that would cleanse for the remissions of sin. The water and the blood. It was the water. But the best was saved for last. The water brought cleansing over here because God had a purpose in it. And he used that purpose. And it was good. But then the best was saved for last. Do you see that? So looking back in John chapter 2. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, verse 9, that was made wine and did not know from where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, who's the bridegroom? Jesus. You see, all this story is symbolic of another day, another time, another wedding. When all things will be poured out and be fulfilled. In verse 10 it says, And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. Oh, the pictures in this place are so powerful as we understand that there's so much more. You see this place of a sign, the beginning sign. Jesus was speaking of what was to come is that his blood would have to be poured out. His blood would have to be shed. And those at the wedding would have to drink his blood. So turn with me to John 6, just a few chapters over. John 6, verse 
it's Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. The third day was so important. It carried a double blessing. I see that as Jesus died on the cross and was raised again on the third day, there's a double blessing. And I saw this blessing as the new creation that he allows us to be as we drink of him and are raised up with him. But the other blessing that God poured out on the day of creation was there was fruit. So I see in this double blessing that there is a place where you can be raised up as a new creation. You can drink of his blood. You can be a part of his eternal life. But there is more. There's the opportunity. If you are truly his, there will be fruit. Because of who he is in you. I wrote a couple of things down just at, as God was unfolding some things. One of the first is I said this first miracle, this sign embraces the plan, God's perfect plan. The word, the logos. That the Lamb of God would be sacrificed that the blood of Jesus would be poured out for the remission of sins. I see how John is bringing it all together in this story. The other thing I wrote down is that everything Jesus did and everything that he does is good. It is tov. We may not understand it. Just as we've had a hard time understanding this story, so many places that we seek and look to understand, and God has to reveal. But this place of tov, for his purpose, Jesus does what is good. 
always for God's purpose. I pray that today this understanding just gushes through you. But I also pray that you would grab hold of this place of Jesus. Mary went to Jesus because she knew that he would do what was best for the situation. And she told the servants, do whatever he says, because she knew it would be right. She knew it would be best. I pray that we can take the circumstances, the situations in our life, we can come to Jesus in such faith and such trust that we know he will do what is best. Stand with me, please.
Oh.